are listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim and Gary. Hey there, Citizen Darkwing Duck here, reminding you that you're listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nidell. But you knew that. Welcome, fellow Toonsters, to an all-new episode of Saturday Morning Rewind. I'm, of course, your wonderful and talented host, Tim Nidell. And with me, I have my faithful sidekick, Gary. I am also equally wonderful and talented. You guys are in for a huge treat for this episode. We have a huge Darkwing Duck episode. I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the jailer who throws away the key. I am Darkwing Duck! That's right. This episode is fully dedicated to our love of Darkwing Duck, the terror that flaps in the night. Darkwing has always been one of my favorite cartoons. Um, I remember watching it a lot as a kid. And uh, more than just the character is a wonderful presence, I've always loved his design and the way that he is personified by Jim Cummings. Yeah, and the and the family that he has is Goslin and Launchpad because they're one big happy family. Absolutely. Maybe one of the weirdest families, but <laughs> they, they work really well. <laughs> yeah. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about our favorite Darkwing Duck episodes and playing a little bit of audio from those episodes as well. So I think uh, in a different podcast, I think we'll kind of, we'll do more Darkwing Ducks in the future, like our favorite villains, our favorite characters, our, you know, that kind of stuff. But this time around, we're just going to be talking about our favorite episodes. And at the end of it, you're going to hear an exclusive interview with the one and only Tad Stones, the creator of Darkwing Duck. I could probably do a whole episode on, on Darkwing's uh, Rogues Gallery. <laughs> so many good villains on that show. Yes. Uh, yeah, Darkwing's... See, I I like DuckTales better than Darkwing Duck, just slightly. <laughs> but I love Darkwing Duck's characters more than DuckTales' characters, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it does. It, it absolutely does. Yeah, each one of them just stands out, and each one of them is just... It, it's amazing. Yeah, you really can't beat it. But before we start talking about our favorite Darkwing Duck episode, I do need to do a couple quick site and podcast updates. Number one, we have a brand new voicemail. I want every one of you listening to call in, leave a voicemail for us, and we will play your audio, as long as it's not too explicit or whatever, play your audio in the podcast. So if you want to hear yourself, I mean, just call, say hi, talk about your favorite cartoon. Um, You got a question for us, ask us a question. But we're calling it the Tune Line. So call the Tune Line at 406-214-5541. That's 406-214-4451. Call now. Perfect. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to start doing that. Probably, I don't think we received any voicemails for this episode because I just posted like a couple hours ago on Facebook that we're doing this. So yeah, yeah so you can call anytime. It's It's only directly a voicemail you're not going to reach anybody or anything so just call i don't care if you call at two o'clock in the morning leave a message it'd be really cool to hear from you guys also i've been changing the website out just a little bit i changed a lot of the podcast page on saturdaymorningrewind.com so if you go to the podcast page you'll see a different layout there and on the right hand side you can not only listen to every podcast episode from there you can also send us an email there's a little form there to fill out. So if you want to, if you're too shy and don't want to leave a voicemail, I understand. Just go on the page and uh, just leave a comment. Also, we need more iTunes reviews. 
um, this really does help out quite a bit. Uh, people, the the more iTunes reviews a show has, the more listeners it gets. So if you really like the show, please you know leave a kind word on on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And also Stitcher Radio, you can also re- leave a review on Stitcher Radio as also if you if that's the way you listen to it. And one more thing, do not forget to face. Uh, do not forget to face us. What? Do not forget <laughs> to follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitch TV. We'll be playing some retro Nintendo games. Uh, YouTube. We got a Pinterest. And if you shop from Amazon.com, on the very first page on SaturdayMorningRewind.com, there's an Amazon link. So if you just click there before you buy anything, we'll get a credit from it. So it's kind of like you know helping us out, giving us a little bit of cash. We get like a small percentage of it. So anything helps, honestly. So if you shop Amazon, please remember to do that. All of these links are on the website, SaturdayMorningRewind.com. Whew. Jeez, that's a long one this time. <laughs> all right, Gary. Yes. Did you want to talk at all? Um, <laughs> <laughs> are we on the record or off the record right now? We are on the record, but what's real quick, it's, uh, it's <laughs> February, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's February. Wow. The month of love. Okay. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is my anniversary in February. Well, there you go. There's, so. there's, there's love. Also, Valentine's Day. Yeah, whatever yeah. that is. Well, yeah, yeah. When you're married, okay. eleven years, you don't have Valentine's Day. <laughs> I've been married for two, and we don't really have it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a dating thing, I guess. It is. It it is. And fortunately, um, my wife is anti Hallmark holidays. Uh-huh. All right. So since this is February, I just wanted to do a couple birthday announcements in the world of voice acting. We've got Kath Susie on February 20th. But you're asleep! Darkwing Duck could never sleep through a crime. Now be a good girl and hand over that sand. Oh, I do want to be a good girl, but I, I can't. Oh, being bad is too rewarding. I thought that was a fitting one for the Darkwing Duck episode. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, Kath, Su- uh, Kath Susie is really... A great voice actress. Yeah, she is. It doesn't seem like she's doing much these days, which is a shame because I haven't heard her in a while. But in the 90s, she was a powerhouse. Yep, and so was this one. And she's still going strong. And speaking of strong, it's Tara Strong, born on February 12th. I think you should do what he says. It would be a shame to get blood all over my nice new outfit. What do you think, Bad Brain? Like it? What am I saying? Of course you do. Who wouldn't? (laughs) I don't think we really need to talk much about her because I think everybody loves her. Yeah, pretty much. She can do anything, though, from baby voices yeah. to creepy, crazy lunatic women. Yes. And uh, <laughs> she's she's fantastic. And speaking of fantastic, the one and only the late, the great Wayne Allwine on February uh, 7th. Wait a minute. This show's not over yet. What's Mickey up to? I miss Wayne. I do too. Uh, it's it's so great that uh, speaking of the month of love of February, uh, you know that her uh, that he and Rusie Taylor were actually married for 
20 years prior to 30 years i think prior to his death who was also the, the voice of Minnie mouse if you didn't know that absolutely which is which is great that mickey and Minnie were really married in real life uh, that's pretty crazy huh yep and i feel like you know there's been two people to voice mickey since chris i can't even attempt to pronounce yeah. his last name <laughs> And and Brett Ewan, and both of them do a great job, but they're just still not Wayne. Nope. So now uh, we're going to talk about what's new with DVDs in February, and also what's going to be coming to and leaving Netflix. Uh, so for starters, we'll talk about the new DVD releases in February. We will be getting a new Lego DC Comics Superheroes uh, DVD, which a lot of people saw the old one, which was Lego Batman the Movie, which kind of bummed me out a little bit because i really looked forward to seeing it and then i found out that it was just cut scenes from lego batman 2 hmm. uh this actually seems like it's going to be a legitimate made for dvd special and uh so that looks really good it's called justice league versus bizarro league and i've seen the little tv spot for it and it's pretty much bizarro versions of everyone from the justice league oh, that's so cool be... i love bizarro yeah <laughs> yes yeah, so you know you've got an idiotic flash and a, and a crazy <laughs> lunatic batman so it's it's a it's a really good looking little special in the same vein as batman we're going back to batman 1966 season two part one is coming out on dvd for all of those who didn't get the complete series on blu-ray which is expensive absolutely yeah in the long run it'll be cheaper just to buy the full series but if you like dvd or don't want to jump on the blu-ray bandwagon yet here's your option to get season two part one um in addition to that Big Hero 6, the latest Disney film, is coming to DVD, which I thought was quite good. I haven't uh, seen based, it yet. It's, it's pretty good, based I, on uh, Marvel property, the first Marvel and oh, uh, yeah. animated crossover, I, I believe. I, I, we, I can't, think... we can't see it because my daughter, who is two, is terrified of them. Really? Yeah, every, the, ever since she saw the first trailer for it, the first time she saw it, she was actually shaking when she was watching it, and she was backing up and staring at the TV at the same time, shaking, backing up and staring at it, and she was terrified. And that lasted for at least maybe four months. And now she'll look at it, but she doesn't seem too thrilled about it yet. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. He's so cute. I don't yeah, know. And, and, and in the movie, he's just a giant yeah. stuffed animal, really. I, yeah, mean. I, don't, I don't get it. I, I, think, I don't know. I don't think she's ever seen Ghostbusters. Is she scared of Casper? No, we even watched Casper last week, and she was watching it. <laughs> that's that's kind of funny, and I, I will say it is a little intense for a kid. Yeah, movie. and it, that's okay. She's okay with intense stuff, but I don't know. Uh-huh. I mean, anyways, yeah, that's so weird. When uh, when my wife and I saw it, there was an intense action scene, and a kid in the theater was screaming for his parents to leave. <laughs> and uh, I thought, man, I mean, it's rated PG for a reason, but yeah. I really didn't think the kid would have that hard of a time watching it but it's it's still good and for adults it's even better because you catch a lot of the little marvel hidden things yeah. including a stanley easter egg which is a lot of fun <laughs> and um did i ever tell you that I interviewed stanley oh yeah yeah it was a good time it was like um seven eight no it was like it was 10 years ago wow 10 years ago <laughs> from my old website rock bottom i interviewed stanley yeah it was it was a good time is it, it was 15 minutes because i had to keep it at 15 minutes long because he's a busy guy Still, that's 15 more minutes. Yeah, I know. Than most I know. Stand. That's pretty great. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else do we have coming out? Uh, the other big new movie release is Scooby-Doo Moon Monster Madness, which is the next in the long line of straight-to-DVD Scooby-Doo movies that really haven't been that good since. I haven't seen them. 
maybe Zombie Island, which was the first one. Oh, yeah, so. that was good. <laughs> I like Zombies Island and Witch's Ghost, which was right after that. But ever since then, I've ah, can't yeah. really stand them. Uh, but still, I know a lot of people like them, so I thought it was worth noting. Uh, new on DVD as far as TV shows goes, are uh, it's uh, season one, part one of Clarence, which... Mm. Tom Kenny spoke about in his last um, spin on the show, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite shows that's on TV right now, and and my wife loves it too. It's it's kind of funny. I find that girls like it a lot more than guys do. It huh. seems like, but it's it's a lot of fun, and it's very '90s in its approach. You know, for example, the first episode is, you know, takes place almost entirely in like a a restaurant play place. You know, with a ball pit and all the good stuff. And then, you know, the second episode's an arcade. Third episode is just, you know, I mean, being a kid, it's... And I'm probably getting the episode numbers wrong, but you get the point. It's mm-hmm. it's it's what I loved as a kid, and I'm, I'm sure it's, it's nice to see that on TV these days. Uh, last thing of interest, uh, they are releasing a bunch of retro TV shows, uh, including Starcom, Action Man... Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego? Really? And Jumanji, the hmm. series, season one. Um, which Jumanji's not really old enough to earn a retro title in my yeah. mind, but it was one of the last, I believe, Klasky Shupo um, releases while they were still married. Wow. It'd be cool to see Carmen Sandiego again, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been watching, uh, I've been working on cutting out some commercials for uh, the website and uh, some old retro. 90s commercials and whatnot and uh i've seen a couple where on earth is carmen san diego promos and that's that's exciting did you ever watch the game show the game yes i I love the game show (laughs) oh that was so good yeah was it acapella was that the group that was doing the intro oh yeah 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 Uh, and i i guess i guess it will be brought up at some point but um I worked at a toy store, and we had these Muzak players that would just play the same songs every four hours. So, And, you know, we got a new disc each month, but one of their favorite songs to put was the Where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? <laughs> so I got to hear the acapella theme song once every four hours, five days a week. I don't love it as much as I used to. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's still... Great song and a, a really good cartoon, and I and wish they'd released the game show. But you might be too young to remember this, but when I was in uh, middle school, from mm-hmm. our computer class, we would play the Carmen Sandiego PC game, and that was I a bet. that was a blast. I, yeah, back in those days, that's what counted for computer class or whatever. <laughs> those those were my favorite days. <laughs> and then we also play um, Oregon Trail quite a bit too. Oh yeah, yep. I died of dysentery a lot in that game. Yeah, but that, I guess that was elementary school for me. Yeah, yeah, it was... Third grade, was, no, second grade, yeah, second grade. Yep. I do remember the Carmen Sandiego game, but I don't I don't think I ever owned it or really yeah. it was played fun. it that much. Yeah, it was, I liked back it a little. Yeah, back when be self-contained on a floppy disk, Yeah, right? back when I was in, I guess this would have been seventh grade, that's when I played it, I think, living in Reno. Right. So, yeah, good times. So that's that's pretty much it. The only other notable thing is they're releasing a documentary called video games the movie hmm. and uh it's gonna it has interviews with sean astin and zach braff and a bunch of other people and it's talking about the history of video games um i'm not sure if this is the same thing that they did that whole et atari game for or not oh, okay. uh, that might be a different documentary for all i know but but uh it's it's great to see that video games are coming alive in documentary form yeah that's cool 
Now, one thing I want to mention that you didn't mention, um, yeah. Disney's 101 Dalmatian on Blu-ray. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I love 101 Dalmatians. I don't think it gets the respect that it deserves. Um, definitely a classic, so go check that out. Is this the first Blu-ray release for it? It is, yeah. Oh, okay. They're still, Great. you know what? They still have not released Aladdin on Blu-ray. Really? Yes. I, why? That's one of the most famous ones. Why isn't it out there? They, re, they released Sleeping Beauty twice on Blu-ray. <laughs> but no Aladdin. Wow. That's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, with all the space on a Blu-ray, they could release all three movies. Yeah, they could. On, Which they'll, what they'll do is they'll release the first one and then the second two on its own disc separately. Yeah, that's how I got my um, DVDs for them. Yeah. So, yeah. Disney, get on that. We want Aladdin, all three of the movies. That's right. And more on the sequels later. Yes, we'll talk about that in just a few, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Sounds good. So, all right. Let's go ahead and go into it. Let's talk about our favorite episodes of Darkwing Duck. There's so many episodes, first of all, to choose from. Um, It wasn't easy. But these are the three that I remember loving as a kid. And even now as an adult, I still love them and like watching them. So these are the three that came to mind when I first thought about doing this for the episode. Let's see. The first one, I think I'll start with number three. One of my favorite episodes entitled Twin Beaks. (laughs) Written by Tad Stones, who we're going to be interviewing later. Yeah, this is a, a weird episode. I don't know if you ever watched Twin Peaks, Gary. Yeah, I did. Okay, yeah. It's a great show. I didn't watch it as a kid because it was a weird show. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, so this episode of Darkwing Duck, it starts off, Honker's parents, the Muddlefoots, are are missing. And so Darkwing goes to search for where the Muddlefoots are and uh, couldn't find out they're in this small, like, really small town. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't even explain this episode. It's just just out there. Launchpad thinks he has psychic powers because he's talking to a log, and the <laughs> log's um, telling him things. Uh, yeah, and uh, Bushroot, he's dead. He's like a hardened shell of himself, and they think he's dead. And they go to this town, and uh, here, I'll play a quick clip of it. Let me see if I can find it. Here is some of the music that you hear in the episode. It's very much like Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's just really cool sounding. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's good scores. And actually, to break away slightly for just a second, my wife and I have often discussed, you know, what makes 90s cartoons so much better. Mm. And it was the clear attention to everything. And just little things like that with the music, you know, that that created a feeling, a presence, you know. And, and like with Animaniacs or with Tiny Toons, they used real orchestration. Mm-hmm. And yep. you don't get that a lot nope. these days, and that's something that's. I mean, you don't you don't even get really intros nowadays either. You just go right into the cartoon. That's very true, but anyways, I digress. Carry. <laughs> so, in another scene, they find Bushroot dead. He's actually wrapped in plastic, and he washes up upon shore, and they and they find him, which is something you just don't, you especially won't see it nowadays in a cartoon. But, I mean, I guess even in the 90s, this is probably unheard of where a dead body washes up (laughs) on the beach. (laughs) So here's another quick audio of that. It is Bushroot. 
He, he's dead! Again? Guess that blows your swell theory about him, huh, Dad? Well, have fun. I'm gonna check on Honker. What? Aren't you just a bit curious as to why a mutant plant duck breaks out of prison and ends up wrapped in plastic? How else do you keep vegetables fresh? So yeah, I this I can't even explain this episode. There's talking cows. There's uh, heads of lettuce. I guess it's kind of like invasions of the body snatchers, really. That's <laughs> how I can best describe it. Yeah, it's a very cool episode. If you haven't seen it in a while, if you've never seen it, check it out. It's called Twin Beaks. All right. So uh, I guess uh, for my first episode, I'll uh, I'll go with one of my favorite episodes that I remember watching as a kid. Both of these are two that I loved watching as a kid. And there's an ironic connection between the two that I'll come to later. But but uh, for starters, uh, I'm going to go with an episode called Comic Book Capers. It's ah, the, uh, that's a good it's one. It's the ninth episode of the series overall. And uh, it was... I just... I love the tone of this episode, how it starts out with, uh, with Darkwing Duck um, reading a comic book about himself. And uh, I've actually got a little a little audio here from it. This thing would ruin me. I'd be a laughingstock. No villain would cower before me again. Look, Bob, little impressionable children all over the world will be reading this. How can they pattern their lives after me if they think I'm a coward? If you're going to do a comic book based on my life, you're going to do it right. There's only one person I trust with a job like this, and that's me. And of course, from that point on, hilarity ensues as Darkwing or Drake goes to his home and, and locks himself in the attic and, and, and tries to write this perfect comic book that embodies him to the T. The problem comes in whenever everybody realizes that he's writing a comic book. <laughs> uh, you know, first, uh, Launchpad. Um, causes a distraction by filling the washing machine with too many bubbles so he can come up and start writing the story. And actually, I believe Goslin creates a distraction first, and she starts taking over the story. I remember Launchpads specifically because he takes the tone from what Darkwing has, which is like a standard Darkwing Duck story. And, uh, of course, with even more Darkwing. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Launchpads' uh, version, they it suddenly shifts to this Western environment where they're riding horses, they've got cowboy hats on, and, and the villain the whole episode is Megavolt, which is uh, one of my favorite yeah. Darkwing Duck villains. You can't beat him. And then it, it even escalates to the point where Megavolt breaks into Darkwing's house and he starts writing the story. <laughs> and, and this just, this just uh, it, it's just one of my favorite episodes. And, 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 and that's why I love Darkwing Duck so much, because they weren't afraid to break that wall. Yeah, and, and and my next episode has a lot of wall breaking as well. Um, no pun intended, but uh, <laughs> so that that's that's pretty much it for my first one. Comic book capers. I, I love that episode. Hi guys, Freakazoid here. Don't freak out, but Saturday morning rewind will be right back after a quick word from their sponsor. Oh, and don't forget to fly over to their site at SaturdayMorningRewind.com. <gasps> Are you a fan of DuckTales, Gargoyles, or Tailspin? Then boy, have I got a podcast for you. 
Hi, I'm Jason, host of DAF Radio. And I'm Matt, the co-host. Join us as we talk about these fan-favorite shows that you grew up with and meet the people that made them. Find us at DAFradio.net or in your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, enjoy the afternoon. (laughs) Well, back to the show. Guys! Oh, guys! Guys-a-roni! Tim! Gary! Guys! So I think for my next one, I'm going with one entitled Life, the Negaverse, and Everything. Mm. Do you remember that one, Gary? I do indeed. Okay, so on this one, it's Honker's birthday. Uh, Darkwing goes to the, I guess, the bakery to get a cake and... uh, there's a naked duck climbing into a giant cake in the back room, and uh, Darkwing goes after him, of course, and realizes it that it, it and realizes <laughs> I said realizes <laughs> <laughs> and realizes that it is a, a dimensional like a portal to another dimension. It's a lot like what we mentioned earlier, you know, with Bizarro. That's pretty much what this was. It was the Bizarro world of Darkwing Duck. Everything was the opposite. So you got Honker, who is usually good. He is a little demon. <laughs> uh, you got Launchpad, a bad guy, a villain. You got Goslin, sweet as an angel. <laughs> um, Tank, he's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you got... People like, uh, you know, Liquidator and Quacker Jack, they're all good guys now. And so, I have a clip from that. We are the terrors that flop in the night. We are the soap that's cleaning up this town. We are Darkwing Ducks. King Gear. Friendly for Darkwing Ducks. Different name, same old losers. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great episode. Very well written. It's everything's opposite, and like the whole Saint Canard is like it's the bad part of town. Everything's trashed. Everything's filthy. There's crime everywhere, and uh, and this is definitely you'll hear in the Tadstone interview talk about Goslin how Goslin was pretty much the glue of the series. That connection they had to the parent and and the child. That connection kind of held the cartoon together. And this episode really, really showed that, especially when he decided to stay in that part, that type of St. Canard, because there was nobody to watch over Goslin, because in that world, Goslin's father was Negaduck. That's right. For my uh, second and and, and last episode, uh, well, I mean, there were just so many to choose from, but, but this one I remember just being so enthralled by it as as a kid and then i i kind of forgot about it because it was uh i never had any i never had it recorded or anything and 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 i saw it on disney channel late night uh whenever they were playing the disney afternoon stuff at like two in the morning and uh so this episode was actually episode 77 of the 91 so it was almost at the end but uh it's called a brush with oblivion it's uh it it introduces one of my favorite villains who was only there for two episodes and this was really the only big episode for her. Basically in this episode Honker and Goslin have their art on display in an art gallery. And uh, a work of art is is stolen and and Honker is 
accused of being the one who stole it because he was nearby. He claims that he saw a lady come out of a painting, but nobody wants to believe him because that sounds ridiculous. But in Darkwing's world, you know, nothing is too ridiculous. Um, basically, this, this uh, character, her name is Splatter Phoenix, although it's never said in the episode, except somehow Honkers knows it, which is just a little, I guess, a little writing or a line that got cut or something. But she has this paintbrush where she can use it to kind of zap a painting, and then she can go into that painting. And so she was running from, you know, painting to painting and stealing different art to uh, try to sell it illegally on the street. And uh, Honker is the only, Honkers is the only one who knows what's going on, and, and Gosselin believes him, um, of course, you know, because she would. And, and so the two of them wind up going, and, and, Honk, and Gosselin gets put into a painting, an abstract work of art, so she becomes this abstract work of art. Her face is kind of split in two, and it's in black and white. And, and, and uh, so finally, Honkers convinced Darkwing and Launchpad to come back to the museum, and he proves to them by seeing Gosselin in the painting that this character is actually running around. But and there's a lot going on in this episode, more than I could, you know, explain mm-hmm. in yeah. a few minutes' time. But but my favorite part of the episode is is whenever they go into the wall. And basically they she she zaps a painting and then leaves the portal open and they all wind up running through these different works of art. And their art style varies based on what they're in so you know they might run into an escher painting and then they look (laughs) like something else or a van gogh painting and they look kind of it's hard to describe via audio but the episodes on youtube it's absolutely worth checking out um and unfortunately it's not available on dvd like the other one i mentioned was but uh the strange connection that i found out after the fact was that these two episodes were released on a VHS tape together hmm. back in the 90s called Comic Book Capers, even though they're, what, 56 episodes yeah. apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Comic Book Capers tape, I, I remember buying because I was like, oh, these two episodes, I love these. And uh, I put it in my VCR and the tape destroyed it. Oh, wow. Uh, so I never bought another Darkwing Duck VHS <laughs> tape after that. I, fool me once. No. <laughs> But they're just two great episodes, and they're both so abstract in their approach that I just, I love them. The only way to help Goslin and avoid a stiff prison sentence for myself is to catch that villain. You, my renaissance refugee, will solve all my troubles. Hold it right there, you misguided duckalangelo. Can she do that? Come on, Launchpad, let's get surrealistic. But anyways, what's your final picked him so this one has been my all-time favorite dark redeck episode since i was little since i was 10 i guess um it's time and punishment mm-hmm. an episode where goslin yet again gets in some trouble she <laughs> sees uh megavolt and cracker jack doing something and they have like this time machine it's a, it's a spinning top time machine like a gigantic spinning top she somehow gets tangled in with it and they go to the future there in the future, instead of a regular Darkwing Duck, there is Dark Warrior Duck. He's got like spikes on his, his he's got armor, he's got spikes on everywhere, his eyes are red, and just looks evil. He's still fighting crime, but it's like petty crime, like people jaywalking, or there's a curfew, you know, and he pretty much tries to kill the people because they're out past, what, 9 o'clock at night or whatever. 
So there's no crime whatsoever because he has destroyed it, but there's also no fun in it. And uh, here's a little clip from that. I am the terror that hunts in the night. I am the jackal that gnaws at your bones. I'm not finished. I am Dark Warrior Duck. Maybe a year in the pen will teach you to use a crosswalk. Jaywalker. <laughs> so you can see there, he's a little more strict than he would have been usually. And yep. I, I, as a kid, I used to love Dark Warrior Duck. I remember drawing him everywhere when I was little. I know I have it still somewhere, I think. But yeah, he was he was probably my favorite character for the longest time in the series, even though he's only on one episode. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's pretty much the whole episode in a nutshell. Uh, she needs to figure out how to calm him down, you know, and... Uh, Kind of find out Launchpad, you know, was fired from uh, being his sidekick because he was too lenient on the on the villains, and uh, Launchpad now has like a like a white streak in his hair because he's older, and yeah. <laughs> so that's that's about it. My three favorite episodes of Darkwing Duck. I, there's a ton more. Let me tell you that, but that's for a different episode. Well, you know, one thing that I love about Darkwing Duck is that we can sit here and talk for like three minutes and not even go through a whole episode. Yeah. I mean, a lot of shows are very on the surface, but, and some of these episodes were, I mean, let's be fair. Some of them weren't that deep, but the fact that they did go deep occasionally, you know, something you don't understand as a kid, but as an adult, you're like, wow, how did they get away with that? That's, yeah. yeah. That's really cool. All right, so uh, I guess let's go right into our interview with Tad Stones. Uh, in addition to creating Darkwing Duck, he was also one of the driving forces behind Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and he also worked in the early days on Gummy Bears and uh, DuckTales, as well as created some of the most iconic characters from DuckTales, including uh, Gizmo Duck and Bubba Duck. Uh, in addition to that, he, he continued to work for Disney for a while and, and, and worked on the two Aladdin sequels, as well as the TV show Somewhat, and... And he's he's had a long, illustrious career, and we talk about everything here. So let's go ahead and uh, give that a listen. Hey, Toonsters, this is Buster Bunny. No relation to Babs Bunny. We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you this very important interview from Saturday Morning Rewind. First, Tad, thank you so much for coming on, and we are all huge fans of a ton of your works. This is, this is amazing. Hey, not a problem. Glad there's an audience for it. <laughs> I want to I want to start off in the way beginning. Um, as a childhood, what kind of kid were you? Um, and did, were you always interested in animation? Well, I was a fantastic child. Uh, everybody said so. No, uh, I was just a kid. Uh, yes, I was always interested in animation. My father wanted well animation cartooning. Um, my father wanted to be a cartoonist. He went to USC and did a like a comic, a daily comic for the paper. But technology being as it was, he, that meant he was carving a linoleum block every day. <laughs> um, so he couldn't really work on his style. And when he graduated, it was like the Depression. So you took whatever job you could get. And he always was doodly, doodling, always cartooning or, you know, in the margins of a newspaper. But he didn't have that drive uh, to keep working no matter what his job was. Anyway, he had a great long career carnation company 
and Carnation Company is affiliated, or at least was, affiliated with Disneyland. So once a year, we got to go to the company picnic, which was at Disneyland. And I was fascinated by the Art of Animation exhibit. Uh, I got the Art of Animation by Bob Thomas, which was focused around the original version of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, I loved the, the Disneyland show where they went behind the scenes and showed animators and show mm-hmm. artists. Uh, back then, Walter Lance had a Woody Woodpecker show, and in between cartoons, he would show you how to draw Woody and whatever. So there, was, there wasn't a mystery to me that there was never a point where I looked at a cartoon and said, what do you mean somebody draws them? <laughs> I mean, I, I assumed that. Um, plus, my dad had these famous artist cartooning course with... Uh, by Al Cap of Little Abner fame and Milk Kniff of Steve Canyon and Terry and the Pirates. So again, the idea that there are artists who create these stories um, was, you know, was expected. I mean, I knew it. So yeah, long rambling answer to yes, I always wanted to be in animation. Actually, I'll I'll make it a little more rambling. Um, the thing was. My thoughts, like in high school, were that, well, the only place worth animating is Disney because everybody else was, if, you know, was doing very limited animation. Um, and my thought was Disney has all their guys. They're not looking, which when I got in the, the very small training program in 74 uh, was actually true at the time. Uh, it wasn't until... You know, Jungle Book made a lot of money and Robin Hood made a huge amount of money, like $6 million. I don't know what that'd be in today's, but they were impressed. Uh, And they were saying, what provisions have you guys made for training new people? And they put Eric Larson in charge of the program, and um, that's when I got in. Wow. So did you have any uh, favorite Disney movies as a kid? Um... I would say Peter Pan, but it's not that's not like a specific memory. I just liked it a lot. But remember, we didn't get to watch it over and over. It wasn't right. on tape. It wasn't, you know, at best you got those little a super eight or eight millimeter films that just had a little scene or a chunk of that um that you'd watch on a projector, which was a big deal to set up. Uh and the few films I had like that were actually more Ray Harryhausen uh, monster movies. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Were, were some of the? Did you really watch any other uh, cartoons as a kid? I mean, like, did you? Who? I guess who was your favorite cartoon character? Was it all Disney, or did you like? No, no. Because remember, again, on television, uh, there was hardly any Disney other than the Mickey Mouse Club, and that would show like maybe one cartoon a day. Uh, it was Warner Brothers all the way. I mean, those were the characters. Um, all those cartoons, the classic cartoons, were on. Actually, when I was very young, like five years old, um, I would, you know, there was a, in Los Angeles, we had Sheriff John on in the middle of the day. And uh, he would show cartoons. I now know in retro, uh, retrospect that they were this weird assortment of cartoons of different packages. So I saw early Fleischer stuff, oh, stuff nice. that... Um, was probably a silent cartoon that they then put um, music to, like Farmer Alfalfa. <laughs> um, 
just some really strange, like, uh, oh, what's the clown? Coco the Clown coming out of the inkwell. I mean, that's some of the earliest animation, you know, and cartoons that were out there. And that's what was being shown, you know, in the middle of the day. This was... Now, when I was also young, that was when Crusader Rabbit came out, which was like the first... I think that was the first cartoon produced for television. And then uh, after that came Rough and Ready by Hanna-Barbera, uh, Hanna which was you know, their first big series. And then, you know, they created the system that made animation doable on television. Yeah. I, so I didn't have a favorite. It was just like massive input. I mean, <laughs> um, basically it would be Warner's. It would be um, Bugs and Daffy. Yeah. You know, would definitely. definitely be it. But, you know, I'd watch the Porky Pigs and things like that. But it was always Bugs and Daffy who were the stars as far as I was concerned. Yeah. And that was... My sense of cartoon gags, too. Right. <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier uh, working with Eric Larson. Eric Larson, he's a, he's a legend amongst all the animators. And I mean, he worked on Peter Pan, Snow White, Pinocchio, all the classic movies. What was Eric like? He was, you know, I didn't take advantage of Eric as much as I should have in that because of my background and the Preston Blair um, Art of Animation book, which is uh, just uh, you can still get it now. It's it keeps being reprinted, yep. uh, and all no matter how big an animator you are, even Glenn Keane had a copy of that, you know, in his <laughs> desk. Um, anyway, because I kind of knew that there was no formal system of training, I mean, Eric would kind of take you in and tell you basic stuff. Uh, some of which I heard when I visited before I actually got there. Um, and then I was kind of like fumbling along and I should have just kept, I should have just like everybody else did just constantly go into Eric's office and keep bugging him because <laughs> that's what he was there for. Um, but you know, I certainly got enough input, but it wasn't, I didn't have the one-on-one -on -one relationship I could have, um, with him. Um, I mean, I did, but it, I'm just saying I didn't. I didn't suck him dry like yeah. I should have, yeah. you know, basically, oh, of all his talent and knowledge. <laughs> I mean, years later, I was in a room with Ward Kimball for nine months, about eight by 12, and we talked plenty. Oh, good. Usually not about animation, <laughs> so. Right. So uh, I, I understand that you uh, did a scene with the uh, Rescuers, correct? Yes, in the original Rescuers, there's a scene of um, Bernard Mouse walking across the desk in Madame Medusa's pawn shop and the cuckoo clock or whatever the clock chimes and he turns and looks over his shoulder. Uh, that's all me. Really? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it was like cleaned up by somebody who didn't really want to, you know, it was a weird time. Suddenly there was a very um, strict um, kind of class system at Disney back in the day there were the directing animators and, the, you know, I guess there were the guys who had Walt's ear and then there's a level under them, the nine old men. And, you know, uh, so the idea and there were plenty of guys who were kind of in their second string or always had to, you know, be the assistant animators for the, the key guys or whatever. And then suddenly here were these young punks right out of uh, college and they're saying, yeah, clean up this guy's scene. And, you know, <laughs> uh, 
I caught my cleanup artist on a bad day, evidently, because he just like barely <laughs> cleaned it up, and oh. it was like I did not like really try to get it on model, so it's a pretty sketchy, literally, you know, <laughs> scene. But uh, hey, at least I've got one in there. there, there you I go. did. I I was given another scene of um of a the rabbit and the owl lighting fireworks in the bottom of the steamship, uh, steamboat. And that's a part of the climax. And I kept, you know, they said, this is the amount of footage you have. And I kept fighting it and fighting it. I had, you know, the owl on top of the guy's shoulders and going back and forth. And, you know, I just couldn't get it done. I mean, I couldn't do it. And I forget the literally what I did, but I kind of, I gave back the scene or I moved into story at that time. I forget it would, probably would have just given it back. And the scene was actually done by Cliff Nordberg. And it was one of those things where I was told they had to enter down the steps, run over to the fireworks, and then, you know, start lighting them. Mm-hmm. And I was being way too literal. I couldn't see, how do I how do I get them from the steps to there? And then when I see the finished scene, it's like, yeah, they maybe took one step, two, to get from <laughs> across the room to the fireworks and start lighting things. And uh <laughs> I do feel good in that I Cliff, who did the scene, actually, we recycled all our paper and rough drawings, um, found the drawings in the recycling pile that I did and was flipping through them. And he said, wow, this is looking pretty good. How come I didn't go with that? It's like, whoa, I guess I was stupid. That's why. <laughs> I mean, if, if there's any kind of regrets, although I can't, you know, I had a great career, but, uh, and hopefully still having one. Yeah. Uh, there is it is that whole being worried about bothering you know the veterans mm-hmm. where most of them were very open i mean i worked with Willie Wrightman plenty i worked with Ken Anderson Dave Mitchner and um the guys in story plenty cuz i did you know story work on fox and hound um but just you know they were there to be you know talked to and kind of get what you can from them and I just I never felt comfortable doing that it was just uh, uh, like oh, I don't want to bother them they don't want to spend time yeah. with me and so you know I missed out on a lot a lot of opportunities that way yeah I think I would have done the same exact thing kind of being intimidated by some of the, the legends out there yeah I mean these, these are the guys who did all of them uh-huh. you know all the great pictures <laughs> now one of my favorite Disney movies was Fox and the Hound and I understand you had a lot to do with the story right well I worked on it. I had a lot to do with the story. It sounds like, yeah, I came up with many sequences. No, I, I was, they gave me a chance to move into story. Then now that was back when, um, credits were only a few cards long and they were totally up to the, uh, you know, the opinion of the director. And, uh, I started, I did all my work under Willie Reitherman and, um, I also worked with, um, I was working in pastel and working with um, Mel Shaw, who's a you know fantastic story artist, and you know worked in um, in pastels. And he would like show me some of his tricks and techniques. So he'd do, he'd draw over my drawings, which didn't do me any favors later when they were trying to figure out how much work I did. They just kind of <laughs> looked at the stuff quickly and said, "Yeah, it was Mel's stuff." Um, anyway, I did a. The first thing I had was they gave me some Frank Thomas animation that had already been done and wanted me to rework it. It was uh, chief was injured, wanted me to rework it into the story as it 
had occurred. I guess they were happy with that. Then um, um, I did the sequence where the hunter is setting out the traps to catch the fox with Todd. Okay. But then I left and worked at Imagineering, which was then called Wed. Um, and little things happened when I was away, like, oh, Don Bluth and his people left the studio and tried to shut down the feature animation department. And um, the directors all changed in Fox and the Hound. And when it came to credit time, you know, they called me to, you know, the manager of the department called me to say, you're not getting credit. Wow. And, and in a weird, in a weird Disney way that only an insider can understand, it was almost the fact that I was ready for it and didn't scream and shout that, that, that he was like, well, I, let me go see if I can get you credit. You know? <laughs> but, uh, Again, what bothered me is, or one of the things I said was, he says, yeah, Fox and House come along great. There's a great sequence where they're setting out the traps. And I said, yeah, that's my sequence. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, I didn't get credit. And it didn't bother me until when they're doing the credit card, the credits, uh, they gave credit to uh, Squeaks, the caterpillar as himself. And because he was a sound effect, they thought that was funny joke and it was like oh great you gave it you gave a credit line which and we're talking about you know letters on a piece of paper you gave a credit line to a non-existent entity you know but i who actually did sequences in this movie didn't get a chance so i mean what my basically me moving into story came from me on the rescuers well actually before that and once you make it into the program you do you know, two eight-week personal tests teaching yourself to animate or learn to animate while you're doing the test. Uh, you survive that and you become an in-betweener. And the only, the, how you get ahead is to do personal tests. And I kept on coming up with tests to do and um, getting them so far and then coming up with a better idea and getting into that one and having another idea and doing it. And, um, you know, went on for probably a year and the manager of the department, Ed Hansen, happened to be walking by and I was looking at one of my tests on a moviola, and I said, hey, Ed, could you come in here and give me an opinion? I was thinking of going back into that and tightening it up and, you know, showing it to the review board. And he looked at me and he says, wow, that's good. He said, wow, we had given up on you. <laughs> so, <laughs> excuse me while I bend down and pick up the heart that I just dropped on the floor. Um it's like maybe someone should have said something. Could we have have like an update once a year? But anyway, it was. I realized I kept coming up with better ideas for tests, or what I thought were better ideas for tests. And that's at, you know I made assistant animator by showing that test. Um, but I realized I was more interested in coming up with what the characters should do rather than actually executing them doing the story okay so that's why i pushed hard to get in story i got a shot in or i didn't during rescuers i storyboarded a sequence just because i had looked at the story and and said man there's no face-to-face -face scene between madame medusa and penny hmm. so uh i had madame medusa in her room or whatever and penny comes in and it's just madame medusa just treats her like crap uh, and I got to, you know, show it to Wooly and, and Milt Call and Frank and Ollie and, you know, other people in the story department. And 
Milt said, oh, she'd never be that harsh. She would never, you know, it just, it doesn't seem right. And But, I mean, Wooly looked at it and said, well, maybe we'll give you a chance on stuff. Hmm. Um, and then later on, I guess they did realize that, hey, <laughs> these two characters should meet. And the brilliant Vance Gary took over that sequence or created the sequence because, like I say, I just storyboarded a thing. And he came up with the super memorable um, Madame Medusa taking off her makeup while Penny comes in and asks about being adopted mm-hmm. and all of that, which was a brilliant yeah. tour de force by Mild Call. So um, if somebody else, actually Pete Young in the story, said, you know, that started with you. That was with your idea. And it was like, you know, had gone right past me. It was like, yeah, yeah, I did. So that's, that's got to be kind of flattering to find out. It um, is, yeah. I mean, it was cool. I mean, it was exciting. I mean, back then, basically, do I want to go into animation? I mean, I remember we had a screening of a bunch of people's animated tests, and I'm looking at the tests of you know, you know people ahead of me, like John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman, whoever, and I said, well, wait, my tests look pretty good as, you know, Maybe I should say an animation. So there was a brief time when I waffled, and then it was like I came to my senses. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things that happened is they put me on an educational film, Health and Alcohol Abuse, um, that I did the story and the storyboards. And, I mean, I wrote, did the storyboards, and produced. It was done in New Zealand by a guy who used to be the assistant of John Lounsbury, another one of the nine old men. Uh, and because it was an educational thing and it was entertaining, that's when they moved me to uh, Imagineering to help out with uh, Epcot. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, so I, I worked on the Transportation Pavilion with Ward and then uh, the Space Pavilion, which you'll notice doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, although I did get to meet George Lucas, and oh, I was nice. the only guy. We had lunch. I sat across from him just by happenstance at the conference room <laughs> where we were eating chicken. Wow. And, you know, there's a bunch of older guys in the room and I, I just said okay my friends back in animation will kill me if i don't ask you about star wars goes, oh, no, go ahead and this was i'm pretty sure this was in between star wars the original and empire and he told me there were nine films in the and, oh my goodness you know that, that uh which he later on denied but but yeah. said that luke would become a ben kenobi type character but the weird thing that i didn't think about till recently was he actually said People won't like the first three films because they're about trades and negotiations and things. They're, it's more of a political trilogy. Um, and I think people don't like it for different reasons. Yeah, exactly. but, <laughs> uh, but it was just funny two ways. One, that he said that. Um, but then secondly, it's like, you, you know, you're making up this universe. You can If you're creating films that you think no one will like, <laughs> you're allowed to tell a different story, you know. You know. So, anyway, that's you know, it was it was that was a little bit of fun, and you know, it was a great time. After working with Ward on transportation, I moved to work with uh, Tony Baxter, who's the like chief designer of Disneyland at oh, one wow. time. Uh, and Tony and I and Barry Braverman were the three leads on the Imagination Pavilion. Um, which was a whole lot of fun, and then we sold it, it was all wrapped up, and that's when I was going back to the studio to work on the Epcot documentaries. Again, projects never got made. Um, And Tony said, you're leaving right when the fun part happens. This is when you get to actually build the ride. (laughs) Little did he know that after the thing was sold, they actually kind of went through a hellhole of 
okay, now that we've sold it, let's change everything. <laughs> so <laughs> I missed that. So, so I guess everything worked out. Now, you, do you get a chance to go to Disneyland, Disneyland very many times, or do you keep Not going? anymore. Jeez, I realized I went for my granddaughter's uh, birthday a year or two ago, and it was like, geez, we got to take a second mortgage on the house. How does a family afford this? And that's when I realized I had never paid for Disneyland okay. because I said my father, you know, took us once a year because of the company. Um, and then when I got a little older, he was able to get free tickets for me in high school. So I went a couple of times with, you know, a group of friends and then on a date later on and, yeah. and in college. And then, of course, I started Disney. They gave you tickets uh, twice a year. And then at a certain level, you get the silver pass and uh, you, know, you can go whenever you want. Yeah. The uh, Now it's changed. More, Way more people get, I think everybody gets a silver pass or something. They just block out all the days so you can't yeah. really go there. Yes, I don't, I've got friends who go there who are huge Disney fans. Um, and I have, you know, I now have a mixed history with Disney. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your favorite ride there? Oh, I don't know. I don't, you know, like same as anybody else, um, different times of life, you say, oh, that's a, you know, I like, I love the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, but that's mine. Haunted Mansion, Haunted Mansion sucks as a roller coaster. Thunder Mountain is much better. <laughs> yep, so it depends go. on what you're looking for. <laughs> um, they, they would always pull people, um, you know, from time to time, like what kind of ride they'd see. And nobody said, oh, we want to see uh, guys pillaging a village and uh, raping women. Can we get one of those? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, then after Pirates of the Caribbean, everybody said, oh, do one of those, but with cowboys. Oh, do one of those, but with the Vikings. Oh, do one of those, but with, you know. Suddenly, people wanted more of what they really loved. So Yeah. But Pirates was always such a cool ride, too, because it really immersed you even more than Haunted Mansion into the world. Uh, that was one, and the ride that Ward and I designed for Epcot has been taken apart, and it is now a thrill ride, but it was kind of the world of motion, and it was going through history, the history of transportation with these audio-animatronic scenarios, and the weakness of it, I felt, was, and they just couldn't afford it, was that you didn't get that immersive experience, because you didn't, it would be one thing if you went into a a temple of some sort and you see the one scene and then you come out of it and you're in a whole different area, jungle, and then you go into a different land where you're to get these little uh, landscapes. But uh, so that one of our scenes was the first traffic jam, uh, like in San Francisco. Well, if you went in and were actually part of the street, that would be great. Mm -hmm. But instead, you know, what was behind you was just black and it was a, it was basically a stage in front of you that you saw these audio animatronic figures going through the thing. And I think that misses what audio animatronics really gives you. People don't go to admire sculpture and, you know, hydraulic movement. It's to be in a, another world. And I think those, those immersive rides are the best. So, um, from, from, uh, rescuers, I believe, uh, did you did you work on any other movies besides those two, or was that pretty much it? I mean, I know you worked um, on the Aladdin sequels, which we'll get to later, but... I did, uh, let's see, it, w it would have been... Well, we were always, we were all trying to 
come up with new movies to do because I mean I shared an office with Ron Clemens, so Ron and I were always trying to come up with cool ideas and and pitch. And Ron has a huge natural story talent, evident by the you know movies that he did afterwards with you know Basil Baker Street and well, excuse me, The Great Mouse Detective mm-hmm. and Little Mermaid and you know Aladdin and all of those. Um, so I worked on those two small film, the, the educational film. And, and that was it because the next would have been Oliver and company. So I was gone for that. Right. I was already, I was already in TV. So that was the only, those are the only two features. Right. Which I've, I've heard that you came in on, I believe it was the third season of gummy bears or yes. Okay. What happened is basically I went, I was going to the World Science Fiction Convention once a year back then, um, which started with my Epcot stuff. We used to go for you know, research and and meeting various science fiction authors. Um, I kept going, and I was just you know kind of flailing at, at Disney because it was I was in this weird thing where I was doing these Epcot documentaries, and the networks basically said we don't want Epcot documentaries. We have our own news departments to do low rated documentaries. you know again, the company was living in the past. They thought that they remembered how the networks were all begging Walt to do a show you know based on his new park called Disneyland. And they thought the networks would like beat down their door to say, yes, we want to give you five hours of primetime programming to talk about your new theme park. <laughs> uh, and, and surprisingly, since it was right in the middle of their new season, they said, no, nah, we're not so interested. Uh, anyway, what came out of that is a couple of things. One, uh, we went ahead and put some animated things in little sequences into production with uh, – Joe Van Sitters, who went on to do, who create Renegade Animation Studios, and Mike Giamo, who I believe was one of the art directors on Frozen. Um, a lot of the guys from Cal Arts were just, you know, and Joe Ramft, uh, who, you know, went up to Pixar to do fantastic story work. Uh, anyway, they worked in these little animated sequences. The shows fell apart, and we tied those sequences together in a little short called Fun with Mr. Future. Um, which is a goofy, crazy thing that I think you can find on YouTube. But to give it a try, it was hosted by um, the inside of Mr. Lincoln's head. <laughs> Guys just put a bow tie on him, and he became the narrator of talking about how personal computers will come into the home. <laughs> so that part's pretty dated now. But, uh, you know, it was fun. I mean, that, and so that happened, and then plus it put me on the television live action side i helped on the donald's 50th anniversary special got to meet dick van dyke and work with him um but then i was kind of flailing around and uh it just felt like i was not going anywhere and uh i was called to be the in the first meeting with michael eisner about tv animation uh but then after that and they went ahead and started working on stuff but after that i ran into Mike Webster, who was one of the first heads of TV animation. And I said, hey, Michael, do you have any storyboard slots open? Because my thought was if I could make as much money I was then making as a freelance storyboard artist, then I would quit and just do that and uh, write for my soul in my spare time. 
You know, in other words, I'd write science fiction short stories and that's what I would do. And instead he said, oh, you don't want a storyboard. Why don't you come visit us at our new studio? And I did. And suddenly he's introducing, yeah, Tad's coming over here. And I just, I don't know why, but I just kept my mouth closed and was like, really? I am? (laughs) And that led to, I had forgotten that they had, because of that original meeting, they had wanted me um, to be part of TV animation since the beginnings. And this was like eight months, nine months into it. Um, I met with Jeffrey Katzenberg. He said, the guys can really help you, you know, use you over there. You can help them out. And it's not a one way street. Um, it turned out it kind of was, but <laughs> you know, anyway, what suited me about TV animation was, um, my job at Disney had always changed almost every year and a half. I was doing something different and I enjoyed that in TV animation. I started out as, actually technically an executive called the creative manager of the department and then quickly took over the third season of gummy bears because they need a new story editor. And from then on my show changed every two years or so. Um, so really working on one story in a feature for four years or whatever, you know, probably would have driven me crazy. Right. Totally understandable. And then you moved into, uh, Rescue Rangers after that, or, or right, Rescue Ranger. Uh, the Gummy Bears was basically a stopgap measure. That was before they were they, you know, when the Disney Afternoon came along, they decided let's do enough to fill out a sixty-five episode order. So that was just the third season, and I believe that was the final season on network. Um, so maybe I killed it. Uh, <laughs> Well, I know anyway, a lot of the voice it, actors were lost yeah. around that time, too, yeah. and a lot of things changed, so maybe it wasn't you. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd like to believe that. Yeah. Um, anyway, the yeah, I did that, and then Rescue Rangers was a chance to um, create a new show. Uh, the idea was uh, Jim, Megan, and I uh, created it together, but then only one of us was allowed to be on the show because, like, the other guy would be the person in development and giving notes on shows. So Jim became that guy and I became the guy to do the show and uh, practically killed me because back then we we still didn't know how we should be doing the shows because suddenly it was like we had three units of artists, three directors, and there were only two of us being uh, story editors, myself and Bryce Malick. And it was just too much work. So I was working seven days a week. My day off quote was Sundays when I only went in for four hours. Oh my God. Saturdays, Saturdays were eight hours and everything else was insane. Huh. And uh, I was rewriting acts and finishing up act threes, you know, just in a matter of days. So Rescue Rangers was a lot of stream of consciousness. And then they took me off the show. They thought I was making it too young. Huh. <laughs> and my, my COVID, Bryce said, it's a show about three-inch high chipmunks. It's going to be cute. You know, it's going to be young. So uh, anyway, uh, Jim came in to take it over. I think he only did um, one or two episodes before he left for Tailspin. And then they gave it to Ken Koontz and David Weimers to finish out the last 13 or so. And they were just told, make them as wordy as you can. We have to get these things through. Huh. Um, so it was like, gee, really? I was so bad you took me off my own show <laughs> and then just, you know, just crapped it out in the end. I mean, those guys were were great at dialogue and all that, but the shows did take a different, you know, kind of, 
what can we do? What can we just talk through? You know, instead of trying to come up with a lot of visuals, which I was more oriented to. Yeah. Right. Did, so I guess actually we're jumping back a couple years, but did you do any work for DuckTales? Because I've heard that you created like Gizmo Duck. Yeah. Well, I was I was in the kind of the creative development role back then. So um, as a in development, you come. They wanted to. Uh, even though DuckTales, you know, they knew they were going to do 65, they said, okay, we're going to do some initial episodes. We need something to give it some more juice, just stuff to promote. And I pitched, uh, so they were looking for new characters, and I pitched um, Space Duck. I mean, I went with cliches. I went Space Duck, <laughs> which did not go, or Alien Duck. He didn't even have a name. It was just an idea. I remember he had a horn on his head, as in a trumpet horn, not a shark thing. Um then Giz- Gizmo Duck, although I pitched it as Robo Duck, although mm-hmm. the drawing is, I think I've put it, posted it before. It's pretty close to the final design, yeah. and the name Fenton Crackshell. So I came up with him. The basic idea of him, again, Ken Koontz, David, and David Weimers took on that character and really created who he was and um, you know, made him into a real character. Uh, and then the other was Bubba Duck, which I just yeah. went Caveman Duck. And, right. and, uh, and again, it was just concept and a name. I did not, you know, that was kind of like the, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You know, and then it took the story editors and writers to really flesh them out. Mm-hmm. Gizmo, it's more, you know, I contributed more, but it's kind of in the nature of the character to be that way. Um, and and cr- correct me if I'm wrong, but Space Duck was never used, right? Right. Yeah, but you know there was a character on Bonkers who had a car horn for a nose, so maybe you subliminally created that character somehow. No, I think I mean it's, you know on a show like Bonkers, there's not a <laughs> <laughs> there's not a big stretch to get to a character with a. Horn. <laughs> so. That's a good point. <laughs> no, I wanted to talk briefly, or not briefly. Um, I want to talk about Darkwing Duck. Still one of my favorite cartoons of all time. I, many, many people probably tell you that all the time. What was the creative process like? to get to the Darkwing Duck we see on on TV now or when it was. Well, that was, that was a lot of fun because, I mean, that's the show that's closest. I'm, my two favorite projects in my career were Darkwing and Hellboy. Oh, yeah. Uh, with Darkwing, it was, I mean, it started out, uh, the world can thank Jeffrey Katzenberg, basically, because Jeffrey loved the name Double O Duck, mm-hmm. which came from an episode that, again, Ken Kuntz and David Weimers uh, wrote on DuckTales, which was Launchpad by himself, and it was a James Bond parody. And Jeffrey loved the name, and again, I was the guy currently on bat for development, and he said, develop that. And this was well before Austin Powers, which I guess is a way to say, <laughs> hey, you could have made it good. That would have been different. But... Um, I went into it thinking, you know, it's just a spy parody. It's got no drive. It has no sense of family. There's no heart to this. But I did it, and I had, you know, all the typical James Bond-type gags um, with this character, Double O'Duck. And I showed it to Jeffrey, and Jeffrey said, this is just a spy parody. This has no heart. There's no sense of family. And, you know, you have that split second where you say, me and the boss think alike. And then, <laughs> then he says, do it over. Uh, and that is something I should have done in the first place where it was just like, I should not bother pitching something I don't believe in. And instead went back in the pulps and thought about the shadow and the green hornet. 
uh, and you know Silver Age comics, and you know basically quickly got on the road to Darkwing, uh, but it didn't all you know gel until came up with Goslin and the idea of what if Batman had a daughter to raise who refused to stay at home, and uh, that was Darkwing. That was the heart. Goslin really was the heart of Darkwing. So a lot of people miss that. Even Boom Studios, when they did their comic run, uh, and I've talked to the guy, I'm close with the guys who are actually you know, writing and drawing that and doing the new ones too. And I always said, look, as soon as you put Goslin in a superhero outfit, whether it's Quivering Quack or a little robot suit, <laughs> you've taken away what makes that special. Now she's just another hero. Yeah, she's younger, but you can play on some ego things with Darkwing, but she was there to complicate Darkwing's life. And it's like I kept telling him, stop splitting them up. Keep them together. That's where the heart is and the humor is. Uh, It's not like what they were doing wasn't funny. It's like, no, this is the unique thing that was part of Darkwing Duck. Mm -hmm. In fact, in terms of favorite characters of that show, Goslin is my favorite character. Then Darkwing. I was going through some of your writing credits online, and I noticed that you wrote, you wrote one of my favorite episodes of all time of Darkwing Duck, and that would be Twin Beaks. Oh, thank you. Well, that's coming back, so. <laughs> <You know. laughs> yeah, exactly. Have to read Darkwing Duck just so they can do Twin Beaks too. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a creative episode. And as a kid, I didn't get the reference, of course, but now as an adult, I love Twin Peaks, and so it just, just watching it, it it's, it's amazing. It's a great episode. Well, it's a, what well, it was neat. We always said, oh, we should do stuff like that again because it was a different creative process. I, Jan Stranod um, was the original writer on I said, and we were always under the gun for timing. Um, I said, we can do this. And he was a huge fan of the show. But I said, it's got to play for somebody who's never mm-hmm. seen the show, yep. which was, you know, 99% of our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and his first take on it was... Um, full of references, but they made no sense. And not in a screwy way, but it was definitely a, a fan story yeah. where if you knew the show, it was hilarious. I mean, he did a great, Jan's a great writer. Um, but uh, I took it over at that point because it was kind of like, I just felt like I, if you don't get it the first time in that kind of case, I'm the one who's the arbiter of what I think is acceptable Inside joke, not too inside. So I went ahead and did it. Uh, but because it was based on that uh, and the weird references that are called called in and using Bushroot and all of that, it was just a weird episode. And we kept on thinking, what's another show that we could do the same thing, do our version of the show, and we end up with a Darkwing story, but it'll have a whole different feel. Uh, and we never did it because, you know, you, you just... You write the shows that, you know, the stories that occur to you. Uh, You don't always have time to hunt for the, oh, no, I'm going to put aside this story that I have and instead give more thinking time to coming up with another story. You know, as soon as you come up with an idea, that's the one you run with. Mm -hmm. Now, what about a a favorite villain? Do you have a favorite Darkwing villain? Uh, Megavolt. Specifically Megavolt, uh, as written by Doug Langdale, who's currently the... uh, the showrunner of Puss in Boots, the oh, okay. DreamWorks show that just started on DreamWorks. 
In fact, I wrote one of those. I think hopefully mine's in the next batch. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it, he's one of my favorite villains too, Darkwing Duck. I, I don't know uh, the voice, the the writing. It, I mean, he was just it was he was just funny, and, and <laughs> um, Doug had this um, just a different way of coming up with thoughts. And my favorite one is that Megavolt knocks over a jewelry store, but what he's stealing is the bulbs that light up the showcase, <laughs> yeah. not the jewelry. But the genius was he runs to the sidewalk and says, you're free, you're free. <laughs> and he, you know, throws the bulbs out, which, of course, all break in front of him. And he's like, <gasps> my children, you know. Nice. And it's just like, eh, that's one of those things I laugh at. I go, I don't know where that came from. You know, I, I don't have that lobe of the brain that you evidently have. So, oh, yeah, Doug Langdell, he wrote uh, episodes of Earthworm Jim. And I think it was like a story editor on yeah, I, I think so. Like and that's just the most surreal comedy I've ever seen. And I oh yeah, exactly. I can't help and, he, laugh. and then he did Dave the Barbarian as another hilarious mm. show. Oh, Weekenders. Yeah. Yep. He did Weekenders, which is a more way more toned down show for him. But uh, Dave, I think, is back there. And they have a lot of craziness and puss and boots, so it's definitely worth checking cool. out. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that. Um, so you said that you are going to be involved with the new uh, Joe Books Darkwing Duck comics in some way. Only in that, uh, no, I just know the guys. Oh, okay. I, they did offer me to uh, write a Rescue Rangers uh, oh, book. Mm. And I just said, you know, I mean, I gave it some thought and, and uh, look into, you know, try to come up with a storyline. And then I just realized that those guys were, um, I mean, it was a fun show and, and great characters, but... To get back into that show, I would have to do research. <laughs> you know, I would have to really study and try to get that. And I'm not talking about the continuity things. I'm just talking in terms of what's the dynamics? How do I come up with stories and all of that? Whereas Darkwing, I could easily get back into. But then more and more, I mean, they had Aaron Sparrow and James Silvani are the guys who are the key Darkwing Duck comic artists. Um and they're so excited, and they've got all these ideas, and you know they run things past me, and I say, "Oh, go farther with that, and whatever um, but it's just like I'm not going to take it away from them <laughs> and <laughs> and it's like, you know what? I love doing Darkwing. If Disney came to me and which they're not going to do and <laughs> and said, "Hey, we want to do a new Darkwing show, I sure I'd do it right uh, but I have characters in my brain that i want to do stories on myself so you know i plus i you know just had a development thing at uh, a series at warner brothers using their characters in much the same way as as we toy around with some of our old shows and it's like well it's good that i don't go you know using up ideas on comics right now yeah i'm still trying to get shows then well just because uh, I remember that specifically with the Boom comics, you did write the annual with uh, Quacker Jack, right? No. No, you I didn't. Just, oh. No, I only wrote the short. There's a little, and it's in the new compendium that's coming out. Okay. I guess. And ordered on Amazon right now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, a little short story of the, uh, the Chrono Duck. That's the right. Yeah, turtle. that's right. Yeah, you can tell because, you know, it's a Goslin story. In fact, right. <laughs> in the logo, she crosses out Darkwing, and it says nice. Goslin. You know, Duck. <laughs> I remember um, that. I remember really reading that annual. So uh, that that was 
probably too ambitious for eight pages. I just had this idea that I said, okay, I want to do page, whatever it was, page three and page seven are the exact same page except for one panel. <laughs> and and just doing that Bill and Ted thing of, you know, oh, we have to remember to come back in the future or, or go back into the past and leave a key for us here so we can find it now. You know, that whole conceit. Um I wanted to play with and I actually wanted it to confuse the reader when they turn the page and they, well, what is this printed out of order? And then, you know, figure it out. And uh, yes, I did confuse readers. Yeah. You, <laughs> I succeeded. You definitely confused me. I remember, I remember the moment of having to turn back. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And it's, it's, although I have been told that when people read it the second time, they really enjoy it. You know, yeah. it's like, Oh, now I get it. And they read it again. So, and it's only eight I, pages. So that makes it even easier. Yeah, so it was one of those things where perhaps, and just trying to get across the time travel thing, um, visually coming up with something, it just, if I had had more pages, I could have slowed things down. But it was great for what it was, and James, of course, did a fantastic job on the artwork, and that was super. All right, so I I guess moving on from Darkwing, you... uh, The next thing that I'm aware of, the big talking point, would be the Aladdin sequels, which... I've got to tell you, I've seen a bunch of the Disney sequels, and those are the only two that I consider really worth watching. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's taste problems. Because Return, really? Return of Jafar is not a good movie. Well, okay. <laughs> I can agree I know, with that. I know that's a pilot thing, but the third one I remember watching Yeah, the third one's great. Well, there was a, okay, there was a thing before Aladdin that wasn't produced, but it'll come up later, and that is I really wanted to do a science fiction story. After, when I started Darkwing, I said, I want to get you know, I want to get like 25% more of our jokes to work because I just, in production and the speed, it's like, well, it started out funny and then it's supposed to be plussed. And sometimes it was, but people didn't understand. And it, it kind of goes sideways, still funny, but I just wanted to get more intention. And Darkwing really superseded what I wanted to get done. So I came out of Darkwing super excited. It's kind of like, now I know what I'm doing and I want to do a science fiction show. Uh, and pitched one and and came did all the work of my own time did all sorts of you know color basically back then we would you know xerox the sketches and use markers to to color them up plaster them on matte board and then go ahead and stand up in front and you know michael eisner whoever and and you know just turn over boards and describe a gag as you're describing characters and whatnot so they'd have visuals so i did all that i had like I don't know, 25 to 30 cards. Um, but I couldn't get past our in-studio boss, Gary Kreisel. He just didn't see it. At one point, he talked about, well, there should be more than one kid. I said, there are. <laughs> but he didn't count the alien kid as a kid. And it was, you know, it was, I couldn't get, he just wasn't seeing it. He wasn't getting it at all. Um but what was worse is later on they did pitch the science fiction show using my artwork, but they just pitched as the Jetsons. Hmm. And he showed me the pitch, and it was like um, I did all that work in my own time, and now I can't use that artwork to repitch the show in the future because you've kind of tainted it. Hmm. Because Eisner and Katzenberg looked at it and said, "That's just the Jetsons. Why would we do that?" And it's like, well, thank you for undoing that. It wouldn't have mattered anyway because took me to lunch and I'm thinking, Oh, this is my chance. Maybe the science fiction show is going to happen. And he, no, he, it, it was Aladdin. And now, as I said, I, 
shared a room with Ron Clemens. So I talked to Ron and John. Says, is this okay with you guys and all that? And they were fine. You know, they were just talked about things that they thought could be done and, and whatever. And Return of the Jar- Jafar, that was um, just a, a five-episode introduction to the show, which we always did for five-episode introductions. And I was the one who called up home video and and um, said, you know, by definition, we're doing the sequel to Aladdin. Are you interested? And they said, no, not really. <laughs> and, until they released Aladdin on video. And I made a second phone call, much the same. This time they were very interested. And uh, our boss came in one day at a story meeting, gave a bunch of notes, and I said, okay, well, we got to get it done by this date. And he goes, why? I said, well, that's so we can get it to home video. And he goes, don't, that's gravy. Worry about this. If we get it done, give it to them, fine. Um, and he left, and again, this was pointed out to me after the fact by people who were there. That evidently I said, okay, we got to do all those notes, but we have to get it done by this date. And all I was trying to do, I was not this genius for seeing the home video avalanche that then came. Um, it was just if they could sell a few copies, maybe they wouldn't be cutting our budgets. You know, I was just trying to keep the budgets up for the the series, and um, so that we could do you know quality work. Uh, anyway, went out. Cost like three and a half million. I think it made two hundred million dollars domestic, um, and created a whole you know system that is a stain on my soul. Um, <laughs> I mean, they've been good, but they very quickly and I did several. The second one we did with more intent. I'm much happier with that. The yeah. King of Thieves. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, that one's. Great. And then it was like, kind of. I did. Did I do one? Yeah, I did Buzz Lightyear after that. Yeah. Um, I never got the kind of budget or time that the Lion King sequels or those kind of sequels, even though I was on it for a month or two. Um, you know, it was a, but mine were always in the category of cost very little, made a lot of money. Uh, but I, there was a time where I was creating an original one based on Jekyll and Hyde wasn't really getting there and now there were other executive other there were executive purely in charge of direct to videos kind of building their own kingdoms and whereas when it was a spin-off of a series kind of like I only had to go through my usual obstacles now here was a whole other level and that's when I came back down to TV and said hey is there anything that I can help out on in the series and that's right when Hercules was starting nice how much longer did you work at Disney? Was Hercules your last series? No, I did um, Buzz Lightyear, Star Command. Oh, that was afterwards. I, I kind of lost track around that time. Yeah, all the Hercules animation. was actually Hercules doesn't get much love. At least I don't see a lot of talk about it. You know, it has an incredible list of stars. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in a position where we had to repitch the series after it was already in production because the movie didn't do well, um, or at least not what they expected, and. You know, Michael Eisner could not believe the list of act of stars that we had on the show uh, as guest stars. And I said, well, Michael, I'm damn charming. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, we asked. And they said, yes. So, you know, and then Bob Schooley and Mark McCorkle really was their show. They just did a fantastic job. They would then rewrite for the actors and uh, they just did fantastic. And then we did Buzz Lightyear together and then they did uh, Penguins of Madagascar and got okay. Emmys for that. And, oh, before that, they did, of course, Kim Possible. 
Well, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're yeah. still at Disney, yeah. That was a good one. Yeah, they are two of the funniest guys and creative guys <laughs> I've worked with. Let's, let's talk about uh, life after Disney. Was it Hellboy your first after that? No, after... Because Buzz Lightyear had been... I mean, the, the, again, a series that kind of gets buried because John doesn't really like it last year. Um, but he was there at the start of it. But it was like, by definition, we couldn't do the show that was in his head for both conceptual reasons and budget reasons. Um and then when Disney wanted me to take a look at the outside of the door um, and then locked it, um, I did a bunch of pilots and, you know, just scripts that were never produced, but some really interesting stuff. I got to work with Stan Winston, who, of course, made wow. all the dinosaurs of yeah. Jurassic Park and Terminators and all that. I got to work with him on a project that uh, a Japanese company wanted to do a a robot TV show based on some of his ideas. And he had this, he had a line of toys going. Each one had a story except for these, this group of some robots, some cyborg type characters. And I looked at him, came up with a story instead of trying to graft a story onto it. He really loved it. And uh, we developed that for quite some time. And then Hellboy started its pitching area at about the same time. But before that I did a, um, the New Adventures of Br'er Rabbit oh, at um, okay. Warner's, excuse me, at Universal Studios. That was a direct-to-video, where I actually in that one I there's a sequence in there that I story I I wrote, story edited, uh, storyboarded, and art directed. Where it's kind of like my tribute to Pink Elephants on Parade. <laughs> it's these three dancing bats um, that came out really cool uh, that lead up to the Tar Baby sequence. Okay, cool. Then I went from there, I think, directly to Hellboy. Because, oh, okay, we skipped over what could have been my third great thing. Uh, we did Team Atlantis, which was the Atlantis spinoff. Okay. Uh, and uh, that was just, you know, it was a fantastic experience. People loved it. The crew thought it was going to be like a landmark show on the order of Batman what Bruce Tim do with Batman. Yeah. Not because the vision, just the, the stories that we were telling. Cause basically I said, I'm never going to get to do Hellboy. So this is it. <laughs> Let's do it here. Um, but you know, we didn't have the Disney afternoon. We had, um, they were starting to Disney and it was like, well, we can sell it to tune Disney and ABC. And you know, we were just, we went ahead and produced and the movie was PG and that was kind of our series too. Um, it was, Really cool at the there was a not a time travel element to it, but we were saying that no, these crystals keep these characters, it slows their aging. So, you have these characters, we could tell stories over a span of like 30 years. Uh, and they higher ups just said, too, too confusing. So, we just <laughs> kept it back then. And the idea was that when they that at one time Atlantis had covered the earth, had explored all over, and had left artifacts around. Um, when they re-energized the crystal, those artifacts suddenly became active and something you were using as a paperweight could now be a portal to another place on the planet or, you know, another time or another era. Um, anyway, super cool. We had a fantastic Loch Ness monster story and 
unfortunately, the writing staff, we were way ahead. So we were probably, you know, into the, at least like 70% into the series when you talk about outlines and premises and all of that. But our notes were getting worse and worse because... And I remember when they said, well, the series sold. And this was Barry Blumberg, who was our executive then. Uh, he said, David Staten just called. I would have st- I got to hand it to him. I would have given up three weeks ago. Hmm. And he got him to take it. Um, and I said, oh, what's it going to be on? So it's on Toon Disney. He says, no, it's on ABC one Saturday morning. And I kind of stopped. And my mouth opened a little bit because that was a totally softer educational lineup it didn't you know it didn't have like gargoyles or the might you know any sort of hey we can do anything we want on the disney afternoon it so it was like okay so we dived into it and from the problem was david really fought to make the show and then tried to make the show fit one saturday morning Hmm. and it was just like that was not the show we were doing and you know the famous one that I wanted to make a T-shirt of is uh, we were doing a Bermuda Triangle idea, and the idea that there's a there's a pyramid at the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle, and it's this crystal that's been fractured and it's irradiated and changed fishes into like creature of the Black Lagoon type creatures, and they're attacking. And you know he's listening to this pitch. He goes, "Why do we need these fishmen?" And it's like those are the antagonists. And he just, "Why do we need antagonists?" And it was just like, oh, we got to make that into a T-shirt. You know, we never did, but it's kind of like there were times where they wanted us to animate basically an in search of show. Like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't tell people whether the Loch Ness monster is real or not. Let's leave them guessing. And it's like I, I can't tell a story. And it's a monster story. I either got to say it's the old sea captain trying to scare people away. Or it's a monster. You know, I can do a twisting ending whether you think it's dead or not, but we're doing the monster. That's the series. Um, anyway, we struggled through a few episodes. Then Atlantis came out, uh, tanked, um, and they wrote it down really quick, and that's when they shut down the TV. So on Friday the 13th, uh, like 80 people had to be laid off. Wow. Yeah. And uh, it was... It was the pits. Then Barry let us go back in and and uh, add some time to you know make a direct to video because we had a couple. Of, we had one show that was um, shipped already and being animated. Another one that was like in the boxes, ready to go, and a third one in a similar state. So we cut those together and added footage to try to tie them all up. And we totally took advantage of it in that he thought we'd do like five minutes of footage, and I think we did eleven to. 15 minutes of new footage. Um, anyway, that was just, you know, it got me to work with Mike Mignola, uh, who was fantastic. You know, greatest idea men on the face of the yeah. planet. Uh, like in a car on the way to a meeting, that guy comes up with easily four or five feature film ideas <laughs> that you go, well, what, why aren't, why aren't they doing that? You know, um, Anyway, so skipping back, back ahead <laughs> to the future. Um, when uh, I was looking for an agent, and I met with this one guy, and he said, uh, what do you want to do? 
Okay, just tell me what you want to do. And and what he's looking for is what are what are my dreams of my career? And instead of saying that, I said, you know what? I, I want to do Hellboy. Because I had pitched Hellboy at Disney. I did a little sizzle piece. Really? Of yeah. And and I'm sure he would have turned into Heckboy. And <laughs> I really I can't really see people posing with him on Main Street, but <laughs> Then again, he got Wolverine, so yeah. why not? Um, anyway, uh, and he got a big smile on his face because he knew he had me because his company was handling all the merchandise licensing for the new Hellboy movie, and that put me in touch with you know all those people. I already knew Mike. Mike, you know, introduced me to Guillermo. So when Film Roman came and did the you know, got the rights to do the animated movies. They said, well, who should we do it? And Mike said, oh, we should get Tad Stones. And Guillermo said, yeah, Tad Stones. And, you know, the agents, yeah, Tad Stones would be perfect for this. <laughs> They're going, who's Tad Stones? <laughs> Why are all these people saying this? Um, but that was fantastic. I mean, again, super fast schedule. Um, the third day I was there, I was told they were taking a week maybe two weeks out of the script schedule. And it was like, what the script schedule that I don't even have a premise for yet, mm -hmm. that one you're cutting. Mm -hmm. And it was just that whole looking at numbers, not thinking about the logic of moving ahead on something that you don't know what it is yet. Um, but it was a brand new studio for me and I was going to make waves. So it was like, okay, I guess we got to move fast. Um, so we did sort of stone storms first, which is more like a collection of short stories which Mike is famous for. Yeah. And then um, <clears throat> Blood and Iron was the um, Central European mythos of Hellboy. That was much better as a movie, I think. Uh, although some of the visuals of the first movie are incredible. And then the third movie was The Phantom Claw, which was the mad scientist version of Hellboy, which had Nazis and cyber apes. And heads floating in jars and flying around. <laughs> it had a half-human, a kind of a cyber demon. That basically the guy was half-human, half-cyborg. He became a demon, so he had a demon who was half-cyborg, trying to take on the mantle of the crown uh, from Hellboy. Um, it was incredible. We didn't get to produce that one, but we got to write it. Oh. So um, that would have been the great... It was like... Now we know what we're doing because we had to move so fast on the first ones. It was like, okay, now we know what works, what doesn't work as well. And uh, that's real shame. That's the one we really wanted to do. But instead, that's when the company was bought by stars and they said, no, we're not putting our own money into productions. Um, and so that stopped. And instead, I did Truck, Son of Stone. Oh, nice. Which is the bloodiest picture that I've ever worked on. <laughs> well, Turok is great. But uh, so I, I guess you touched on Puss in Boots. Uh, do you have anything else that you're working on in the future? Well, I mean, there was some downtime, sadly. But also, I did. Uh, I worked on Bob's Burgers as a storyboard guy oh, okay. for three years. Worked on Neighbors from Hell before that, right. just storyboards. Um, and while I was there, I did a. I wrote a pilot for Disney Junior, and produced the pilot at. Bento Box, which is the company that does Bob's Burgers. Um, but by the time the show was based on a live action film, which had two sequels, and by the time mine was done, each sequel had done worse and worse. Hmm. So they said, well, you've done a show that's better than the 
movie it's based on, but the movies are going to drag it down, so <laughs> we're going to pass. Um, and after that happened, that was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel because I love Bob's Burgers, but when you're storyboarding on it, you don't get to add a gag. It's totally yeah. writer-oriented and all of that. And again, I learned a long time ago, I'm a storyteller. I mean, that's what, after Buzz Lightyear, the where I had very little input in the story. That was Mark and Bob running that, the story side of things. I mean, I wrote some and, and had, you know, had input. But that's when I realized, like, no, the, the reason why I do, want to do animation is to control the stories. I don't have to write them all, but it's like I want to be the guy in charge of these are the kinds of things I want to do or the stories I want to tell. Um, but anyway, after that, I, uh, I mean, basically, they, after my pilot, I went into a real depression, and partially because of that, <clears throat> we went on a hiatus, and I was not asked back. And that's when my current job came up, and I'm now directing... Looks like it'll be six direct-to-videos based on a uh, line of children's books by Trevor Price and uh, and Joel Naftali, who were... It's basically Lord of the Rings with frogs. Uh, <laughs> nice. It is Kulapari is the saga, uh, K-U-L-P-A-R-I. Okay. Oops, I forgot an I in there. Kulapari. Uh, anyway, it's it, the current two books that are out are An Army of Frogs and The Rainbow Serpent. And we turned Army of Frogs into three movies and Rainbow Serpent into one. And the next one that hasn't been released yet will be another two movies. So we're going to be, and Army of Frogs is actually going to be in the theaters for a couple of nights oh, as a cool. promotional thing come October. And uh, word is we'll be down showing stuff at Comic-Con. Oh, great. San Diego, so... Um, that's been a whole different thing. And there's, uh, I got a great crew. It's, it's, you know, a fun group to work with, but again, we're working super fast, but we got this incredible animation studio in Canada, uh, cartoon Conrad that are just doing amazing stuff that it's like, <laughs> how can you do this? You know, in this amount of time. And a part of it is the technology, but it's still a 2d show. Um, oh, cool. You know, in the meantime, I, you know, I pitch, I, I develop things on my own so I can do, um, again, I enjoy the story work. And I was a big part of the writing of the first three scripts on this project, but probably won't be moving ahead because I'm directing the previous ones. Um, but I wanted, I had a chance to do some development with Warner Brothers. They were fantastic people. I've never worked there before, so that would be cool. But, uh I got a few more years in me. Not many. <laughs> just a few more. Um, I would love to do another series. One more series. You know, even though I'm doing, you could say these are a series of DVDs. Yeah. Really, they're, I'm executing another person's vision uh, who's, you know, Trevor's, ex, he's got, you know, these books. He's got video games coming out. He has merchandise coming out. Mattel, I think, is on board to do stuff. I mean, that guy is a force of nature. So it's like trying to get into his head, trying to figure out what, how's, how do we tell the story on film that's in your head kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's changed as we move through because the shows, the movies get darker and darker as we move along. Um, but I would love to just be able to do one more series that is a combination of comedy and adventure in a, in a big way where I can do that Doug Langdale <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> craziness kind of comedy, uh, and yet tell a real fun adventure story. It's like if if I could went back to a Darkwing like show, it would be we can make it much funnier than this. We can go wilder with our ideas. Yeah. You know, Twin Peaks was nothing. Let's push it even farther. <laughs> and yet, let's in our storyboarding learn from. All the animated Batmans that Bruce did that are so fantastic. It's like, let's yep. kind of parody the camera angles and the excitement and the cutting and, and all of that. You know, let's put those two things together. Hmm. And so I want to do that kind of thing with a whole new property. So. Nice. Yeah, that would well, I be... think if anyone can do it well, it'll be you. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, hope, I would hope uh, some studio believes that anyway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, if I can talk to him, let me know. Oh, feel free. Make, just make give him a cold call. All right, that'll work. <laughs> All right, Tad. Yeah, let's see anything else you want to promote or any. any... I've got uh, nothing to promote. If you've got any other questions on anything, I think we've covered all the. Yeah, I think we've covered pretty a, a lot. Basics. Of, yeah, your career is so amazing. It's hard to not talk about everything, but of course, we don't have five hours. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's funny. I will talk for five hours. Chance, but, um, yeah. It, I don't know that it feels amazing on this end, but now that I have people coming up yeah. um, to me and saying, you know, oh, I really love this or that. And it's mostly uh, Darkwing, even more than Rescue Rangers. Um, and I don't know that they'll cycle. My daughter was asking me, Did they ever talk to you about Hercules? And I said, <laughs> I don't think Hercules isn't quite that yeah. age hasn't come through yet where they're, you know, the people are huge fans of that, you know, but uh you know, that and those early ones, that's a lot of fun. I mean, basically, and it's just, I tend to, in fact, it's always terrible if you listen to my DVD commentaries. You know, a friend of mine is Kevin Hopps, who actually wrote the the DVD of, of Blood and Iron. He said, yeah, I really liked the movie till I heard the DVD commentary and realized how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just because I was constantly going, oh, we wanted to do this, and we didn't quite oh, make it. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to do that, but we had to rush. And, you know, I should learn. Now, one thing I was reading online, IMDB has you credited for voicing one episode as Hammerhead Hem- Hannigan on Darkwing Duck. That's not true, is it? I don't think so he had a he had enough lines that we would have gotten a, an actor for yeah. that i mean there's <laughs> on return of jafar remember that was a huge surprise at how much money it made and um you know sometimes you just step into the booth and do grunts and and uh-huh. whatever in addition because it's like you have an adr group come in and then it's like oh we didn't catch that <laughs> and there was a time and it's just uncredited fun you go in and you just go you know, oh, gold from the heavens, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and specifically, we did that just for Walla, off-screen Walla stuff. And there was an actress in the room who was doing the same thing, but of course she was an actress and getting paid for it. Um, she made an insane amount of money because of residuals on that. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> where is that? And now it is not uncommon at all for producers to be voices in the show. Um, I mean, like regular show, for instance, or for that matter, Family Guy. Uh, it's a practical industry for Seth. Yeah. Um, but back in the day, it was like they didn't want us crossing that line at all. But now, even at Disney, there are guys who you know done their show. I mean, it started with um, oh, Schnookums and Meat. I think Bill Cop did the voice of one of those characters. 
Yeah. But uh, no, I did not do any hammerhead. Did not do any voices. Yeah, that, that was weird. <laughs> I always, I always threatened to do a um, an episode where everybody talked like Keenan Wynn, who is the Mad Hatter, <laughs> and uh, because I'd love to do a Keenan Wynn and be a, be a scary villainous kind of guy, um, <laughs> but the problem with that is everybody does a Keenan yeah, Wynn, exactly. and when you get all these talented voice actors and they're all doing Keenan Wynn, it's just they're all doing the same guy so uh you know we never got around to that but i thought that was a great alternate dimension kind of story well here you go here's a chance to do that voice why don't you close this episode as the mad hatter okay um well thank you very much for uh inviting me along it's uh this is the uh, a comical, a cartoon kind of review thing i it's great now butter that lots of butter Lemon, little lemon. Let's not be silly. Thanks for listening to Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks. <laughs>